The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. It's always nice to be here on Tuesday mornings. just feel it's a very sweet time, time of the week. It's a sweet group. It's just, you know, it feels cozy and kind of... Um, and uh, I thought to share a few words um, this morning about a topic that um, some of us have been studying and talking about a little bit in... Um, a meditation program that's that's happening through IMC uh, that I'm co-teaching with Gil and Diana, which is called uh, Deepening DMP, Deepening Meditation Program, and I think it's a seven or eight month program, and and the topic has to do with um, becoming mindful, becoming aware of the attitudes that we bring to meditation practice. And um, I think there's one way of thinking about practice in that that all practice is, all Dharma practice is, is a certain kind of orientation to experience, a certain kind of stance. rather than being completely enmeshed and completely uh, captivated to the, to the extent that we completely lose awareness and we're just, you know, like, kind of like when you're watching a movie or something and it's, a, it's, a, it's an engaging show and you're just totally in it, you kind of like disappear into the story. Um, there's something about Dharma practice that's inviting us to um, meet experience with a, you know, I mean, there's a number of ways to to think about it, but what's coming up for me right now is a calm, non-reactive awareness. Like, what is it to allow the flow of experience to wash over us and not be knocked over by it, not be leaning forward to grab more of it, not be trying to push it away. So in sitting practice, there's a kind of physical corollary to this of of sitting still and sitting upright, you know. And to be still means to kind of uh, let experience happen and and, and kind of keep our balance, keep our center. And to be upright is like this, this manifestation of alertness, of presence, of dignity, you know. Um, it just has a different feeling when we're, when, we're, when we're engaged in this way rather than kind of being, you know, <laughs> we could kind of sit like this for <laughs> 40 minutes and it would be okay, but um, what is it to kind of, so, so there's kind of a physical uh, corollary to this. Um, 
I, I was just teaching um, a very nice uh, four-day retreat at IRC, our center in Santa Cruz, and, and was reflecting that, and so we have these um, opportunities for practice discussion. So sometimes it's one-on-one with the teacher, and sometimes it's in a group of four or five or six that people come in and who are attending the retreat, and they share a little bit about how they're doing, how their practice is going. And I was reflecting that, you know, one person might come in and say, um, my mind is moving uh, at a million miles a minute, my knees are killing me, and uh, I really hate the food, (laughs) and I can't practice here. I feel stuck. And then another person might come in and say, my mind is moving at a million miles a minute, my knees are really hurting, they're killing me, and I really don't like the food. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to practice with all this. (laughs) You know? It's like, what's the difference? Um, One person is having an experience that is unpleasant. I mean, they're both having an experience that's unpleasant and that may have sort of um, upset their expectations. I can certainly relate to that of wanting to sit down and get calm and peaceful and quiet and concentrated. And then for whatever reason, that's not happening. And, uh, but the difference is um, the attitude, how we relate to experience. And um, if, if we're, if we depend on, um, having a certain kind of experience in order to get peaceful or get what we want or get calm, um, that sometimes that will happen and sometimes it won't. But if we have this orientation that I'm here to be with whatever happens, however it arises, and I have a capacity to be with that. I can, I can bring mindfulness. I can bring uh, kindness, I can bring um, compassion and patience and all the qualities that, that we're, we're cultivating, then it's like we're not so dependent on exactly what it is that happens. And so the second person, you know, fictional person, <laughs> who we'd like to be, we hope we can be, you know, and sometimes we can be that and sometimes we, we can't, but it comes in and says, you know, I'm just having this wretched experience. <laughs> and it's so interesting to see that. And I hear, I thought I was going to come and this, this, this was going to happen. And here I'm really irritated, anxious, um, sad, angry, whatever. But it's so interesting because I'm discovering that I can sit still with it. It's not, you know, it's not what I wanted, but it's, it's changing and the more curious I get about it, what's this? What's happening? What's this about? Um, I'm I'm finding that there's a kind of space that opens up. There's a freedom that opens up, um, even in the midst of of what's difficult. Um, so this idea about that that Dharma practice is not so much in the content of our experience, the what. Usually, we're very focused on what's happening. 
But, but Dharma practice in this place, the possibility of freedom, this possibility of um, peacefulness, maybe it's not so much about the what, about the content, but more about the how. How am I? How am I with this? You know, what's my relationship to this? And so it's in this relationship to experience that can be freeing. You know, so... Um, So this this idea of the the how rather than the what, and the and the, the the sort of turning point of practice, the pivot point, is in is in looking at this relationship, looking at the how. How am I? How am I with this? And and the and the invitation and the suggestion is I think for each of us to explore in our own life in our own practice is. Um, is there a way of relating? Is there a way of being with what's happening that's more peaceful, that's more freeing, that's, that's opening of possibility? And is there a way that sort of closes things down, fixes us, contracts things, and that brings more suffering? Um, so... And this this other idea of um, looking at our attitude and attitudes to what's happening in meditation, um, I think maybe the biggest benefit of this is it helps us to see the attitudes that that are happening, that the relationships to experience that are happening in our life, and because we can be sure that any kind of conditioning and personality and habit and, and um, habitual way of relating in our life will show up in our practice, will show up in our sitting. So if, um, if I'm a person who I have a tendency to be a doer, I want to do things, I'm striving, I'm tr- I want to get it right, um, get it perfect, um, that's going to show up in our sitting and how do I relate to the practice? If I'm a person who um, has, has, I mean, I associate that first quality with maybe being a little bit more of a greed type and I, I can certainly, you know, relate to that. Sometimes in the tradition they talk about, a, you know, I think we all have all of these, but there's a greed type, an aversion type, and a delu- deluded type, you know, and uh, so the greed is wanting, right? And so what do I wa- how does that wanting show up in meditation practice? Um, it may be wanting a better experience than what's happening now. It may be wanting a more refined state of calm or concentration or something that I think is out there. Um, how does aversion and... Um, uh, I mean, hatred is kind of a strong word, but... Sometimes you say anger or something, you know, it's kind of, um, I, I, I know that sometimes in, in a sitting there can be this experience of really deeply not liking what's happening. You know, I don't want this to be happening now. I don't want this pain, whether it's a physical pain, emotional pain. It can often take the form of um, 
it can get kind of projected onto someone else, <laughs> especially on, in, in kind of meditation retreats. There's this uh, phenomenon that teachers have called the vipassana vendetta. <laughs> and this idea of like our, our aversion and our anger and our irritation gets completely projected onto someone. You know, usually we don't know them, but there's something about them that, that we just find incredibly irritating. And it's, you know, maybe they, maybe they sit near us and make a lot of noise or, or whatever it is. And just to watch the mind do that. Um, and then, and then the delusion type is a little more amorphous, but it's, it's considered that, you know, so the greed type is wanting. The aversion type is not wanting, pushing it away. And the deluded type doesn't really know what's happening. <laughs> you know, they're kind of, kind of out of it. And I was reflecting on this and remembering that when I first went into the monastery to do some, some more um, longer months, months of practice, I was given a job in the kitchen. And this was actually even before I went in for, it was just visiting for a few weeks. And I don't remember what happened, but something, something in the interaction or what I was supposed to be doing made it very clear to me and the other people who were training me, who were there, that I was completely not paying attention at all. I can't, you know, I can't remember what it was, but it was kind of like, they said, take this, you know, take these carrots, chop them this, you know, it was pretty simple. Take them, wash them, chop them this big, put them in the bowl. And I did something completely different, you know, <laughs> like, and, you know, whatever, no one got it, you know, but it, it just became clear to me that I was out of it in some way and I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention. And, and there was something in the kind of work practice that called for a higher level of awareness than I was used to doing, giving, being. And I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. This is like, and I, over time and in, often in a Buddhist community or a monastic environment, there's, uh, we're constantly being asked to be aware like in a zen monastery you part of the form is you walk into the meditation hall on a certain foot you know, I, I think it's your left foot that you step in and so it's very and and so through this doorway it's it's like you have to kind of remember you have to you know kind of think about it a little bit and and then you and you bow in a certain way, and you think. So there's a certain way of being asked to be aware, and it showed me all these these ways that I was just in my head and completely, um, just just living sort of halfway connected and halfway in my own stories, and so the so the delusion type, and that can show up in meditation as, you know, often it's that just kind of being really spaced out. And really, sometimes on a retreat, I'll ask someone, so what, when you sit down to meditate, what happens? You know, give me a little slice of your experience. What are you doing? What are you trying to do? What's your practice? And a delusion, delusion type person will often say, I don't know. I never thought about it. You know, I can't remember. I, I just sit down and time passes and, you know, and then the bell rings. And, you know, I was often to say something, but... Um, 
So, th- so, the qua- so there are sort of conditioning will show up in, in meditation practice. And it's very, very useful. It's like a laboratory or like a microcosm to see, wow, this is what I do. I've, I've been really, um, I've, I've been focusing on mindfulness of breathing and trying to be with the breath. But if I turn and look at the attitude, I can notice that actually I've been relating to the breath in a way that there's a lot of clinging. There's a lot of striving. There's a lot of story around me needing to do this or I should do this. And there's, you know, and, and if I don't stay with the breath, you know, there's some judgment about myself. And so this kind of inner critic can, can show up or this uh, tightness around the breath. And it turns out that that's not a very useful attitude for meditation. That even though, yes, it's good to be with the breath in a way and get more calm and concentrated, if we're very um, tight around it, that's kind of undermining this, this process that's supposed to be happening of, of a kind of open, receptive awareness. So to be able to see that. And then if I can kind of somehow reorient myself, which is, this has been exactly my own journey of learning, like, what is it to balance effort and ease and be able to kind of have an intention and be with something like the breath but in a way that's relaxed that's opening and that's peaceful to have a peaceful relationship with the breath and it may mean that i miss more breaths than i would if i'm just clamping down on it like a dog with a bone Um, but what one of the principles of practice is that we are that the sometimes we say that the the method or the means should reflect the goal so if our goal is to become peaceful if our goal is to become more calm more still more wise more peaceful whatever whatever inspires you what is it to have the method or the the means the journey reflect the goal you know, we're not going to become more peaceful by being really um, harsh and really intense with ourselves and really kind of, you know, um, we're not going to become more compassionate and kind by being really critical ourselves and really yeah you got to do you should meditate more and look at that other person and uh, you know so what is it to have the the path of practice the journey um the the more we cultivate the qualities that um we 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 hope we aspire to in this path then right there we're closer Right there, we're bringing these two things together of the path and the goal. Um, so that's a little bit of a, a sort of introduction to this story. And um, this is a, uh, if I have it here. So this is a uh, this is a this is a dialogue from 
uh, a long time ago in China, Chinese Buddhist story of a student and a teacher. And the, the student was a very impressive monk who ended up becoming a, a famous teacher himself. But this is when he was still a student and he was very big and strong and, and had a very uh, intense, dedicated meditation practice. And the teacher is, is uh, the, the teacher's name is Nangaku and he's going over to the student's hut where he's meditating. The student is called Baso. So it says, One day, Nangaku visited Baso's hut. Baso stood and greeted him. Nangaku asked, the teacher asked, What have you been doing recently? Baso replied, I've done nothing but sit in meditation. Then Nangaku asked, why do you continually sit in meditation? Nangak, uh, Baso answered, I sit in order to become a Buddha. So Nangaku, the teacher, picked up a broken piece of tile that he found by the side of Baso's hut and started to polish it. Baso watched what he was doing and asked, Master, what are you doing? Nangaku answered, I'm polishing this tile. Baso asked, why are you polishing the tile? Nangaku answered, to make a mirror. Baso said, how can you make a mirror by polishing a tile? Nangaku replied, how can you become a Buddha by practicing meditation? That's the story. (laughs) So how can you become a Buddha by practicing meditation? I mean, it's a little bit of a strange question in the context of a dharma environment because the kind of usual understanding of dharma practice is we start out as beings who are confused and deluded and have all these problems. And then if we meditate a lot and do a lot of practice, we'll become Buddhas who are don't have any problems and who are who are wise and who um, and so for the teacher to say to the student who's very devoted to meditation practice um, you can't become a Buddha by practicing meditation is would be a little bit of a shocking thing I think for this monk or student to hear and um, you know, there are various interpretations of this and this interpretation of the story. What does that mean or what are they trying to say? And I think it's something that's open and to kind of, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting to reflect on. Um, one, one way of thinking about it is that um, what the teacher was trying to do is point out the student's attitude to meditation. And if I meditate, even if I meditate in a very devoted way, a very passionate way, with an attitude, an orientation to my experience that's a little bit off, that's a little bit uh, wanting something, you know, even if it's wanting something beautiful, like to be a Buddha, it's a you know, according to this understanding, the practice is, uh, is colored and is tainted 
by that greed, by that wanting mind. And, and if I'm practicing to become a Buddha, it, it, it's sort of like, um, it implies that there's this ideal that I hope to get. And it also implies a kind of rejection of how I am now, of where I am now. Because somehow the unacceptability of this moment, this experience. And so I'm working really hard to get a better experience. And the teacher is kind of pointing to that and saying, um, if you practice like that, um, you'll forever be missing the point. You'll forever be um, uh, thinking that whatever this moment has is somehow missing something, somehow not enough. Um, so that's one, one understanding. And so we can have an attitude in practice that's always sort of uh, ready to sacrifice this moment for some future moment, some ideal. And the idea in practice, the kind of one of the really, for me, a really valuable principle of practice is whenever there's a choice, we feel like there's some kind of choice between the ideal and the actual, um, the invitation and the suggestion, the practice is to choose the actual, to go into our actual experience. Of this is what's happening right now. This body, this breath, this mind. And um, and so this idea of polishing we, that we can't turn, we can't make a tile into a mirror by polishing it. You can't turn something into something else that it's not. And, and in a little, in, in kind of the imagery of, of Dharma stories, um, a tile is said to, this kind of broken, dirty, dusty tile is said to stand for our human nature. And a mirror is said to stand for our Buddha nature. You know, like sometimes the Buddha is called the ancient mirror, a mirror that reflects so perfectly exactly how things are. And, and, and so this idea of, well, no, you can't turn a tile into a mirror. Um, but is there a way so in, in some of the commentaries of this story, this idea of polishing a tile, is there a way that we might be able to um, be with this tile, give awareness, give kindness, give compassion, which really means being with ourselves, right? Being with our, our human nature, our humanity. Is there a way to be with our, our difficulties, our vulnerability, our our mortality, our, all of the things that make us human. What, what would it mean to be with ourselves in a way that to polish ourselves, not in, not in order to purify or clean or fix ourselves, but polish ourselves in a way that in this polishing, in this orientation towards our own life, the tile becomes the mirror, you know? 
It's like, if I can bring this mirror-like quality, maybe, to this ordinary life, this ordinary person, just as I am, um, right there, maybe, this is what it means for the tile to become a mirror. This is what it means to see that our humanity is not, is, can't be separated from our Buddha nature. You know, it's like we don't have to turn the tile into the mirror if they've always been one thing. You know, they've never been separate. And it's, so it's, it's more of like a manner of how we see, how we relate to that tile. Can we so, so, so um, perfectly appreciate the tile's own tileness? <laughs> you know, and that's actually, you know, it's not like there's some secret mirror out there that we need to kind of dig up and find. It's like in this, in this being with ourselves, in this way of relating to ourselves, this relationship, this attitude, we discover, oh, the, the mirror is here. The mirror is in this relationship. It's not, it's not out there. So it's like bringing this, um, I think about this, this way of polishing, or this way of cleaning as, as, a, as an act of profound respect, self-respect, appreciation, care, um, to really, to really look in this way with reverence, with respect, with care at ourselves as we are. And right there, this is the mirror. This is the activity of the mirror. Does that make sense? You know, and, and, um, and then there's I don't know if I, if I brought... Oh, yeah, here's a little bit of the commentary. We must understand... I mean, it's the, the language is... You know, we must understand that when the polished tile is the mirror, Basso is Buddha. So when, when through our activity, the polished tile, which is, which is our own humanity, when this, when this becomes the mirror, when we can be with this just as it is, Basso is Buddha. Accordingly, the tile becomes the ancient mirror. And when we polish the mirror, we will find untainted and pure practice. This is done not because there is dust on the tile, but simply to polish the tile for its own sake. In this, the virtue of becoming the mirror will be realized. So it's like this idea of practicing, polishing the Polishing the tile for its own sake is like meditating just to be ourselves and just to, just to meet ourselves as we are without trying to fix or improve or change. Or, you know, it's like realizing that the complete fulfillment of who we are is this ongoing thing that's happening in each moment. And if we, if we have that understanding, it's like, I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to miss my life. Then be here and be with this. Um, not in order to get to some better place, but to really fully understand this 
and, and reflect this and connect to this. And so, so then this is called uh, pure and un- untainted and pure practice. Um, in, the, uh, in the very first sentence of Zen Mind, of the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which some of you might be familiar with, you know, sometimes, especially with Dharma teachings, they say the most important thing is in the first, you know, it's the whole teaching is summed up in like the first sentence. And if you understand, I think, if you understand this first sentence, you don't have to read the rest of the book. It's like, it's all there. And I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, Suzuki Roshi says something like, um, our Dharma practice is difficult but not necessarily for the reason we think it's difficult. It's not that difficult to um, sit very still and very straight, and it's not that difficult to sit with painful legs. And it's, and you kind of read that and you kind of think, well, mm, it is kind of difficult. <laughs> yeah. Then he says, it's not that difficult to have a calm and concentrated mind. And so, okay. Actually, that is difficult. And he says, and it's not that difficult to attain enlightenment. Okay, so what's difficult? And then he says, what's really difficult in this practice is to keep our practice pure. Is to keep our practice pure. And usually, I think our association with the word pure or purity is like, it's the opposite of dirty. You know, there's something clean and then there's pure or something that's, you know, in the Dharma language, defiled versus pure. And, but he's using the word pure in this, in this sense of to have untainted and pure practice when we do something for its own sake, not in order to get something else. Because that idea about getting something else is usually pretty confused and pretty not not that not that clear and not that helpful, and so this idea of to keep our practice pure means to what is it to sit in a way for for just just to sit, you know? What is it to when when we do an activity? Of course, we do things in order to have results, and that's the way life is. But when we're doing the activity, what is it for the payoff to be in the activity, not in order to get something else? I mean, one of the, one of the I think, ways that this makes sense to me is if I think about if we sing or if we play music or if we sing in the shower or so, you know, it's like, it's a form of expression. We don't play a song on the cello my, my, my daughters play cello. The point of playing a song is not to just get to the end of the song. You know, that doesn't make much sense. And then it's done. But the point is not to get it over with. Or and especially, you know, when you think about kids playing, they're not, you know, it's, it's, they're not about trying to play the best twinkle twinkle that anyone's ever heard. You know, it's, it's like, it's a form of expression. Um, we we play music just for the joy of expressing something. 
So what is it, in a way, if we can see our practice as not so much about um, getting somewhere else, or even this idea of attainment or transformation, but it's like the perfect expression of who we are. When I sit down and feel the body, feel the breath, feel sounds and thoughts and feel whatever's happening in this system. It's like it's this perfect expression of something. Um, And then in that way, for me, just to have that orientation to practice, something relaxes, you know, because you can't really do it well or do it badly. We're expressing ourselves moment by moment and um, and and the and practice is about being there with it, polishing, polishing in this way. And I think about polishing as like this, you know, it's not this like I'm gonna get this clean. It's this something very gentle, it's this gentle contact, you know, that we polish something to to love it, you know, to bring out its own beauty. Um, so so in this practice that's this is this is an attitude to practice that, that I find helpful, that we don't need to get anywhere else, we don't need to make what's impure pure, and what's dirty to make that clean. But we're sitting and polishing ourselves, polishing this body, this breath, just as it is. And in that way, we, um, the tile becomes the mirror. We see the the um, we see that these two are are actually not two that it's in the attitude it's in the relationship uh, that that calls forth the ancient mirror um, so yeah. well, thank you very much and um, we have a few minutes and wonder if, you know, how, you know, questions, comments, thoughts about this, attitude, relationship to experience. Um, what, what are the attitudes that you find are helpful in your practice, in your life? Um, what, are th- what are the attitudes, what are the ways of relating that are not that helpful? Morgan, you want to? Thank you. Um, I'm. It says green light, but is it on? I think so. Okay, thank yeah. you. Um, I'm so glad you said that. Um, the expressing yourself sometimes, um, because so- sometimes I, I, am over I, or a feeling comes over me and all I can think to do is to go meditate to express it and and so it's thank you for reflecting that as a thing because it's it's just something it wants it's like w- wanting to sing but I I just want to go I want to I want to express it and, and and it gets expressed through sitting through a sit right. yeah. and so that's really interesting mm-hmm. and I'm 
again, thank you for mentioning it because I will honor that or like let that cycle through because sometimes I go, why, why is this this way? And so I ask myself, you know, like I'm like sitting there going, but I'm so full of joy, like this just thing. I don't know. And so thank you yeah, for mentioning that. You're, yeah, lovely. you're very welcome. Thank and yeah, you. yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Yeah, I think there, there are some ways that um, some things maybe are best expressed, expressed through meditation. It's very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. One of the other uh, things I like about this imagery of the mirror or this, this kind of activity of, of, of Buddha, of Buddha being like a mirror, is that there's a kind of effortless quality to a mirror. You know, it's like we don't imagine that the mirror is working very hard. You know, it just, it just kind of reflects. And the mirror doesn't judge. The mirror doesn't... Uh, the mirror is kind of this completely, this kind of the ultimate example of non-reactive <laughs> awareness. You know, it's neutral. It's not, you know, something that's pleasant, the mirror reflects it. Something that's painful, the mirror reflects it. Something that's beautiful, something that's, that's awful, the mirror is just there. The mirror is just, you know. And, and it's interesting to see what... In what way, you know, or what dimension of our own consciousness, our own awareness might be, might be like that or might be able to bring that forth in us that there's a, there's a very famous um, poem called The Jewel Mirror Samadhi. You know, it's like this, this, this kind, this, this way of relating, this state of mind that's like a jewel, jewel mirror that's reflecting experience. And it's said to, you know, it's um, the way a Buddha, the way a Buddha sees. So, I would like to uh, filter this through my understanding and see what you think um, my understanding is, of what you're saying is that there is a Buddha nature we have and we just need to uncover that nature our own Buddha nature which is the same as pristine awareness so it's translated as that which is uh, vidya or uh, in Tibetan Rigpa and and that's uh, the sounds like the message of the Zen story that you're describing also so would you say that is true a true understanding of that and is this something that is also 
common to the uh, Pali canon, the early, early Buddhist teachings, or is this just a Mahayana understanding from later traditions? <laughs> great, great question. And and I think one of the things you're probably picking up is that in the in the later Buddhist traditions, the way that Buddha and awakening Buddha nature is talked about has a different flavor in some ways from the Pali Canon, and it's sort it's it's a, it's a debate that that um, in some ways even in the Theravada, there's a debate about um, if if you if you look at some of the ways that like Ajahn Chah talks about uh, practice and awakening, it's very very close to the Mahayana understanding, and it's very different from the Burmese Theravadins. Um, but you know, in the early Buddhist tradition, there are teachings such as this. Which, which I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically um, the Buddha says, luminous is this mind, bright, uh, original, unstained, undefiled, and it is just colored by the defilements that visit it. You know, and it has a little bit of this flavor of who and what we are is... Um, is gets sort of confused and covered over by our uh, you know our thinking and our habits and our conditioning and it's not so much about um, getting something we don't have but about um, allowing what is temporarily uh, covering over our, our our kind of original nature to fall away, you know, and that's in the Pali Canon. And then some people say, well, but then there's all these other teachings that you know, and y- you know, I think for for me, it's it's more rather than trying to figure out like what's true, because I think they're all me- kind of metaphors of talking about something that's really hard to put into language and the nature of language you know is dualistic and the nature of language has all you know so rather than that what I think is the way I relate to it is what what flavor what orientation is um, helpful and skillful and onward leading for you you know and I know for me at different times in practice it's been very helpful to have this attitude of like um, uh, you know there's nothing to get and to really do something for its own sake and just be here and then in certain times in practice it's been very helpful to have this idea of practice as a training you know what's involved in a training is a kind of you know there's a program and you kind of and there's a there's progress and and I think they're both true you know, and and if we're way too much on one side, then, you know, if we're too much on the side of the tile is the mirror, 
then it's easy to get a little bit um, too relaxed or something. You know, well, I don't need to do anything because, you know, um, but, but, you know, if you think about like Zen places, they're pretty strict actually. So they're pretty, they're pretty, it can be pretty intense. So it's not like they're just lounging around on, by the pool because we're already all Buddha. They're practicing in a very intense way. And it's, you know, but with this idea of um, keeping, keeping this kind of purity, keeping this just to really do this, not to try to get something else. Um, and if I'm, too, if I'm too relaxed, that sort of misses that. And then if we're on the side of training and becoming, and um, we can get, we can, we can relate to that in a way that has a lot of striving, has a lot of ambition. And, and then that sort of undermines what it's trying to do. So it's like, you know, really, what is it to bring these together, to bring the side of training and the side of presence, you know, just pure presence. And in that, it's like the tile and the mirror are, are one. And um, I think for different people with different temperaments at different, at different times in our life, um, I would trust. I would trust yourself, and what really, you know, what inspires you, you know. And um, sometimes we meet someone. We meet a teacher or someone, a master. Really, it's like, wow, they. There's something about this person that really inspires me, and then we sort of want to follow what they're practicing or what they're. Um, Maybe I'll just read something which, which I, which I did read yesterday as a um, this very sh- brief. Um, it's a uh, it's a recollection of by a a person who's now a very he's I think he's eighty years old and he's a considered he's one of the most respected Buddhist teachers in Japan. And this is what he says about when he was young. I think he was around 19 or 20 years old when this happened. So he says, It was early, so the buses were very crowded. I had to push through this packed crowd of people to board the bus, then move all the way to the back. As I did so, all of a sudden I came up upon someone who struck me as most unusual. He had a mysterious presence. There was something luminous about him. There he was, an old priest in robes, wearing glasses and reading a book. Yet he glowed with a type of light. In comparison, the people around him seemed so weighed down by their thoughts and cares. I stood in the aisle, a youth who didn't like Buddhism and lived in a temple only because of the circumstances of his birth. And yet I was deeply moved by this intelligent-looking man who seemed so deep and so still and who radiated such brightness of spirit. Why did he seem so different from everyone else on the bus? I had never met a person like this before, and I couldn't figure it out. What was so inspiring about him? There I was, having been brought up in a way 
I didn't want to continue, thinking that temples and priests were really not appealing, when all of a sudden this mysterious person appears with all his great depth, who was obviously a priest. Why would he choose to ex- this way of expressing himself? I was so intrigued by this man and the question he was presenting to me by his whole presence that when the priest got off, I followed him. <laughs> it turned out that this person, Yamada Muman, was on his way to Reun In, a small Buddhist temple in Myoshinji. I followed him right to the gate and saw him go in. Um, and Yamada Muman was considered one of the greatest Zen teachers and masters of the 20th century in Japan. And he became this person's, te- you know, this person kind of ended up studying with him for 20, 30 years and then became a teacher himself. And so it's, you know, it's interesting what inspires us, what, what, what calls us. And um, I, I think I have a lot of trust in that, that we kind of find our way to the teachings and the, the attitudes, the orientation to practice that are kind of what we need. You know? And when we need one way, we find that. When we need another way, we, we find that. Thank you very much. I I hope, wish for all of us that we just keep polishing the tile and enjoy our polishing. Thank you.